The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Today I'm going to be opening up the question of Calvin and Van Til. Uh, the study I've prepared is called Reformation and Apologetics. Calvin's Presuppositional Apologetic. Now, as you hear that title, you might well say, now wait a second, I thought it was Van Tillian Presuppositional Apologetics. Well, one of the things that we find when we look at Van Til's writings is that he frequently says this is basically Calvin's theology being worked out. And my goal today as we bring this segment to a conclusion is to look back and try to look at Van Til's ideas and see if his claim to be standing on the shoulders of the giant of Geneva are in fact correct. And then once we've attempted to look at that, I'd like to conclude with a few uh, challenges and suggestions for those ideas that we find for our own practical and academic ministry in this day. But since this is a celebration of a life that's been very significant, I want to give you my personal uh, treasure that I've experienced in Dr. Van Tilt. A couple things I'd say. I don't think any of the speakers that were here to, during this conference would have been able to say what I'm about to say next. Dr. Van Til was one of my prize students. That's absolutely true. He, he didn't miss a Sunday school class when I was teaching over at Calvary OPC as a seminarian. He was there every week and he was, did a very fine job. He finally graduated and went home to be with the Lord. The Lord didn't ask me what grade he got for the class, but I'm sure he probably was fine. But uh, the other thing I want to share with you is a little side of Dr. Van Til that is especially significant to me. Uh, John Kinnaird here is in the front row. I had the privilege of serving with John on the uh, session as a co-elder with him of the, my first pastorate in uh, an OPC church in Oxford, Pennsylvania. And I was ordained at that church and I had sent out several invitations for people to come to my ordination service and I thought, wouldn't it be great if Dr. Van Til could come? Of course, he was getting rather infirm by that time and I, but I, I thought at least I would invite him. And I got this little note. I've treasured this. I don't save many letters. My wife's love letters and Dr. Van Til's notes about all I've ever saved. Listen to what it says. Dear Peter VDM, Verbum Dei Minister. He was not sure if I knew the, the Latin there, so he wrote that in. He said, May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May his smiling face rest upon thee as thou laborest in his vineyard. May his countenance be benign toward thee and protect thee from all thy foes. They have, made it, they have hated me, said the Lord Christ. They will hate you. Your fellow minister of the gospel, the sovereign electing grace of God in Jesus Christ, till he cometh. Cornelius Van Til. P.S. Sorry, es ist nicht mogen dar nach, nach Oxford's gehen leben Freund. He figured I knew Dutch and didn't know Latin. I can't figure that out. Um, but uh, basically, he said, I'm sorry I can't come to Oxford with you, my beloved friend. That's a treasure. Dr. Van Til was uh, a personable man. He was a friend to everyone who got to know him, and that's, that's my memory of him. And so it's a great privilege for me to be here today to address the question of the connection between Van Til and Calvin, something that Van Til himself was very conscious of. As we begin this time, the first thing I want you to be conscious of is that Van Tilian apologetics as a system is not something that is uh, appreciated by everyone. We've given it a lot of high marks here, we've, put, we've run it up the flagpole, we've all saluted it, but we must remember that uh, not everybody agrees. 
and maybe some of you don't agree, but you've been going along with the flow because you know it would be very dangerous to disagree here. <laughs> but basically we could uh, say that there have been many criticisms. For example, in recent years, Vantillian apologetics has been accosted with such epithets as a retreat into fideism and misguided orthodoxy by John Montgomery. It was called Theology in a Circle by Clark Pinnock. It has been rejected by such reformed theologians and noteworthies and friends as John Gerstner and R.C. Sproul. They, of course, are following the old Princeton apologetic of B.B. Warfield. Criticizing Abraham Kuyper's view of apologetics, and by the way, you remember that Van Til and Kuyper were very closely connected in their thinking, Warfield decried the great assumption that was arising in his day from a, quote, mystical tendency which declined apologetics in favor of the so-called testimonium spiritu sancti, or the testimony of the Holy Spirit. It is indeed significant that Gerstner, Sproul, and Warfield, as well as Van Til, all have claimed to be faithful, reformed students that they are committed to the sovereign grace of God and our great Reformation heritage. And that raises, I think, a very fascinating question. Is there such a thing as the Reformed apologetic? Is there such a thing as a Calvinian apologetic? After all, I'm going to show you, I hope, at least in a few places, Van Til says this is Calvin at work here. I would like to propose the question as to whether the Calvinian apologetical system is the very same system that Van Til developed and taught. Obviously, there must be many differences. We don't want to reduce them. But do we see any connection between the two? That's significant because certainly if Van Til and Calvin are very much alike in their apologetical approach, then such phrases as the retreat into fideism and the misguided orthodoxy, the great assumption, the theology in a circle of Van Til's critics would really then be lodged against Calvin himself. And somehow that seems rather inappropriate when we remember that, after all, it was Calvin's apologetic that took on the medieval consensus, that monolithic culture, and brought it to its knees and brought about Protestant orthodoxy in the modern world at its very best. So let's begin by noting, first of all, one of the foundational principles that Van Til would give to us, and I would find this on page four of his work, The Defense of the Faith. He says this, Protestant Christians ought therefore to celebrate the grace of God their Savior unto them by noting carefully from what they have been saved and to what they are called. Their method of apologetics should be in line with their theology. That's a very foundational point. For Van Til, apologetics and theology are inseparable. In fact, they ought to be one and the same. Some years ago, I had an opportunity to lecture on Van Til, and I proposed it this way, that for Van Til, there is no prolegomenon to theology. There's no way to introduce theology. To begin to speak, you're already theologizing. We might say that there is soon legomenon. You're talking about it at the same time, philosophy and theology, but you can't separate them. And that was his claim. Well, my approach this morning is to raise four basic points that I think are significant. And if we can answer each of these four in the affirmative, I would submit to you that we can claim Calvin and Van Til in the same apologetical school. These four questions go as follows. First, is Calvin conscious of those whom we might call his apologetic opponents? These would be those who are detractors of the Christian faith against whom Calvin is in fact defending the faith. Secondly, does Calvin declare his epistemological presuppositions? These would be the things he assumes to be true as the first principle of his world and life view or his givens or axioms upon which he builds his justification for the Christian religion. Thirdly, does Calvin develop an apologetic or defense of his faith consistent with these presuppositions? This, of course, has been one of Van Til's most trenchant criticisms against the traditional apologist and apologetics of the evangelical 
and Reformed Christianity. That is, does the apologetic itself assume things in its method that are contrary to the faith that it is seeking to defend? Does the apologetic find itself left with the hopeless contradiction of proving Christianity true by the very things that, if true, would make Christianity false? Does Calvin develop an apologetic that is, in fact, consistent with his very theology that he's seeking to defend? And fourthly, does Calvin recognize his own distinctive apologetic by criticizing other types of Christian apologetical approaches? That is, does Calvin criticize what we could call the traditional method of his day? If we can answer all of those and put Calvin in the affirmative, then what we have done is basically show that Calvin and Van Til are very much allies. But before I begin to answer these questions, I think it's important for me to say just a word about the nature of a historical argument in a theological matter. Something is not necessarily theologically true because it's historically true. We can prove many things to be true historically that are in fact erroneous and theologically in error. And so therefore, it is not enough for us to argue that Calvin believed it, therefore Van Til's system happens, must be true if there is this con connection. If sola scriptura means anything, it surely means that scripture alone is primary in deciding any theological matter, including apologetics. But history, we must remember, is not irrelevant. To put it bluntly, it is the height of arrogance for a generation to believe that the Holy Spirit has never taught any other, other generation than its own. Another way to put the matter, then, is to ask if Calvin's apologetic is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. For when the Holy Spirit, who inspired Holy Scripture, is also illuminating the biblical teaching of one of his most notable servants, it is indeed a matter of no small significance. So at this point, I want to just simply say that we can't take the time to do that. And I hope that that's what you will continue to reflect on. Is this a biblical way of dealing with apologetics? My focus today is to say that history is significant, but it is not final. And therefore, I want to give you the historical argument and say that there is such a thing as Calvinian presuppositional apologetics. Well, let's raise then the first question. Is Calvin conscious of his opponents against whom he is defending the faith? I think this is a significant matter because Van Til, on pages 73 through 75 of his work, The Defense of the Faith, develops the notion that he is following Calvin in attacking the various systems that are of unbelief in his day. You may remember, if you've read that work, he gives the great analogy of the handsaw with the blade that's crooked. That there's the ability for the natural man, knowing some of the Christian faith, to do a lot of work. But he always is off. He can't stay on the straight line there's, because the blade is bent. The set is incorrect. And he says, in opposition to the view of the philosophers, Hodge, following the lead of Calvin, stresses the fact that the whole set, that is the set of man's inner saw, needs to be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that we must see is that Calvin is aware that there are men without the Spirit who are off base that we must address when they come to the issue of what do the Scriptures teach. I've been able to enumerate at least the following groups that we might put into this category. First, Calvin addresses the rationalists. He describes them as some men who claim religion was invented to control the masses, or miserable men who measure God by the yardstick of their own stupidity. Don't you love Calvin's invective? That's great. Okay. Unbelieving men wish and demand rational proof, and proud folk who find the simplicity of the Gospels contemptible. We might describe those as the rationalists of his day. There are also those that he calls the impious. We might call them the relativists, perhaps. He describes them as the perversity of the impious who struggle to extricate themselves from the fear of God. There are certain rascals who bawl out in corners in order to display the keenness of their wit in assailing God's truth. There are the superstitious. 
Of these, he says, the superstitious who use the vain defense of their inventions and religion that God accepts man's zeal. Or again, Rome's arguments against scriptural authority are presented to prove that the scriptures need the authority of the church to be believed. In other words, there are the superstitious that must be addressed. They're the materialists. Calvin speaks of those who reject God not for chance but nature. They indeed are monstrous beasts, he says. Again, they are men subject to bl who believe they are subject to blind, indiscriminate fortune, but not providence. He speaks again of the error of the philosophers. But all of these groups together are brought into one common mass by Calvin. And for him, the watershed issue is their view of Scripture. Regarding Scripture, he says, by countless wondrous means, Satan with the whole world has tried either to... Uh, overthrow or overturn it. He speaks of the wiles of the disparagers of Scripture and the fanatics who reject the Scriptures as letter that kills and favor new revelations of the Spirit. The first thing that we must see is that Calvin was an apologist. There were several groups of people that he was addressing in his day who were assaulting the Christian faith. And I believe, therefore, we can say that it is appropriate to consider Calvin as an apologist. He was consciously of def conscious of defending the faith against unbelief. Well, the second question is this. Does Calvin declare his epistemological presuppositions? By epistemology, we mean the study of how someone comes to know something to be true. Is Calvin conscious of this issue? Well, we must say he is preeminently conscious of this issue. The four great books of Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion are begun by the first two books declaring the knowledge of God the Creator and the knowledge of God the Redeemer. The issue of knowing and knowing God is preeminently and principially the beginning of Calvin's theology. And in this particular area of thinking, we could enumerate several significant points and I won't have time to read all of these, but let me give you a little bit of a flavor of some of the significant uh, assumptions, axioms, givens, presuppositions of Calvin's epistemology. The first one is that true wisdom is the knowledge of God and oneself. He begins his classic work by saying, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. If we were to try to translate that into some Vantillian lingo or jargon, we could say that he believes that we must begin with the presupposition of God. We must know God if we're going to know ourselves. But more than that, he recognizes another great Vantillian dictum, that metaphysics precedes epistemology, that you must know what is ultimate being before you can attempt to answer the question, how do you know? Because the moment you begin to answer the question, how do you know, you're already making an assumption about reality. And Calvin says, you must begin with God and the knowledge of God. Therefore, metaphysics and epistemology are inextricably united in Calvin's thought. A second epistemological presupposition of Calvin is that God is the sole standard of judging oneself. That is, that we must recognize that we can never judge ourselves without God. He says, For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Without the standard of God, we will never truly know ourselves. In fact, he says, the prophets and apostles do not boast either of their keenness or of anything that obtains credit for them as they speak, nor do they dwell upon rational proofs. Rather, they bring forward God's holy name, that by it the whole world may be brought into obedience to him. The assumption of his system is that we start with a holy God, Knowing God, then, we can truly know ourselves. Without that measure, we will never know the truth. 
Well, thirdly, another basic epistemological assumption of Calvin we could define as piety is requisite for the knowledge of God. By this means, Calvin, Calvin is saying essentially that unless you begin with a love for God, you can never know God. What is he trying to say? That there is no neutrality with respect to God when it comes to the knowledge of God. You will not find God if you do not love him. You must seek him in love. In fact, Calvin put it this way in his commentary on Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24. He says, Today all sorts of subjects are eagerly pursued, but the knowledge of God is neglected. Yet to know God is man's chief end and justifies his existence. Even if a hundred lives were ours, this one aim would be sufficient for them all. And so it is no accident that when Calvin writes the Genevan Catechism, the minister asks the child, what is the chief end of human life? And the child says that men should know God by whom they were created. For Calvin, there is no neutrality. There is no autonomy. We must begin with a holy God and measure ourselves in light of him. Calvin will also go on to say, fourthly, that man has a priori knowledge of God. That is, that we have an innate knowledge of God even before we're ever told about him. He will say, for example, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy to prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance. God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. In fact, he'll go on to speak of the seed of religion that is planted in the heart of man. And so there is a priori knowledge of God. We might put it this way. There is metaphysical common ground between the regenerate and unregenerate man. That the non-Christian and the Christian have something profoundly in common. And what is that? That they both already are living in light of the knowledge of God because it's in their very souls, by their being the image bearers of God. We could go on to say, fifthly, man has a posteriori knowledge of God, that is, knowledge of God by experience. For example, Calvin will say, yet in the first place, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe where you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. Sounds like the Kuiper Vantillian statement that if Every inch of the earth does not belong to the Lord Christ, then he is not the Lord. There is no inch that he does not say, this is mine. And so does Calvin. We might say in Vantillian jargon, there is no brute fact, since everything shows forth God. All truth is God's truth. All facts are God facts. All facts are revelatory of the Creator. Sixthly, Calvin declares an epistemological presupposition of tremendous weight for apologetical method when he basically says that all of this a priori and a posteriori knowledge of God is worthless for man due to the noetic effects of sin or sin's impact upon man's ability to think and know. Yet this knowledge leaves man without excuse. For example, Calvin will say to us, as experience shows, God has sown a seed of religion in all men, but scarcely one man in a hundred is met with who fosters it, once received in his heart, and none in whom it ripens, much less shows fruit in season. Indeed, vanity joined with pride cannot, can be detected in the fact that in seeking God, miserable men do not rise above themselves as they should, but measure God by the yardstick of their own carnal stupidity, and neglect sound investigation. Thus out of curiosity they fly off into empty speculations. They do not therefore apprehend God as he offers himself, but imagine him as they have fashioned him in their own presumption. What Calvin is basically saying to us is there is no common ground epistemologically between the regenerate and unregenerate man. We share a world of knowing God by our being, but we do not share a world of God by how we seek to know. 
Fallen man for Calvin is blind in his autonomy. Consider the breadth of Calvin's language here with respect to the fallen man's sinful mind's ability to know God. For example, these are right out of the Institutes. Man has pride and vanity. Calvin uses sensory analogies like the eyes. They are blind. He has no eyes to see. We are old, bleary-eyed men with weak vision. That one really struck home as I got my bifocals just corrected recently. Ears, deaf to all voices of God, even the tongue. They lack taste buds for God. Interesting. Feeling hardened in their insensibility. They have mental deficiency. They're stupid, forgetful, dull, confused. They don't understand or apprehend. They're marked by madness of the common herd and feebleness. Yes, they have a problem of sinfulness, evil imaginings of the flesh, filthy mire, corrupted, depraved judgment, and lostness. They have minds like a labyrinth. They wonder as vagrants, staggering about in vanity and in error. And the result of man's efforts to know God, therefore, are utterly futile. They're marked by empty speculations, huge, massive errors, various falsehoods. They're entangled in superstitions. They have no certainty, no pure religion by common understanding, crass vices, and they smother the sparks of general revelation. That sounds like post-modernity to me. Nevertheless, as we go on, for all that man could know by innate means and nature, even if he had not fallen into sin, this would still never tell man all of God. If man is totally depraved, which is what we've just heard, that his mind struggles with the noetic effects of sin, even if that was not a problem, even if man's mind was capable of knowing without the impediment of sin, Calvin will tell us man could never really know God anyhow fully because God is incomprehensible. He says, indeed, his essence is incomprehensible. Hence, his divineness far escapes all human perception. Frequently, Calvin will speak about the heavenly mysteries that man cannot understand. I don't know if it's pushing it too far, but I think this was kind of one of the issues that Van Til was struggling with when he said, I prefer to use the idea of analogy that we never can really know God because he transcends all that we are. And so we can only approximate an incomprehensible God's knowledge, even in our best efforts. Well, that might be pushing a little bit far, but that's a significant issue. God is incomprehensible even for the unfallen man. And then he concludes, as we've had this uh, litany of uh, epistemological uh, viewpoints of Calvin, the last one, very significantly, is therefore, divine self-revelation in Scripture is necessary for the true knowledge of God to counteract the noetic effects of sin and the limitation of man's ability to know God's mysteries. Calvin will say this again and again in various forms. For example, just as older, bleary-eyed men and those with weak vision, if you thrust before them a most be beautiful volume, even if they recognize it to be some sort of writing, yet can scarcely construe two words, but with the aid of spectacles, will begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering up the otherwise confused knowledge of God in our minds, having dispersed our dullness, clearly shows us the true God. This, therefore, is a special gift, where God, to instruct the church, not merely uses mute teachers, but also opens his own most hallowed lips. Not only does he teach the elect to look upon a God, but also shows himself as the God upon whom they are to look. He has from the beginning maintained this plan for his church, so that besides these common proofs, he also puts forth his word, which is a more direct and more certain mark whereby he is to be recognized. Calvin insists in various places throughout his writing that we need God's revelation. That idea, then, we could describe as biblical authoritarianism. Unless there is authority from God, we will never know God. And that authority is found in his written word. Can I be so bold as to say that Calvin 
fulfills some of our concerns for a presuppositional apologetic. He not only knows that he is an apologist, but he understands that there are great epistemological axioms that are foundational to his system. Well, that brings us perhaps to the most salient point that we must consider, and that is, thirdly, does Calvin develop an apologetic that is consistent with his presuppositions? Particularly like a passage that uh, I can find it here. Here we go. In Van Til's Defense of the Faith that I would like to read. This is now on page 84. Again, appealing to Calvin, Van Til will say, It is only to follow out the lead which Hodd in his theology following Calvin has given. If we seek our point of contact, not any abstraction whatsoever, whether it be reason or intuition, no such abstraction exists in the universe of men. We always deal with concrete individual men. These men are sinners. They have an axe to grind. They want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They will employ their reason for that purpose. And they are not, listen to this, formally illogical, have granted the assumption of man's ultimacy. They reject the teachings of Christianity. On the contrary, to be logically consistent, they are bound to do so. What is he saying? That if we have said that man is totally depraved, totally lost and dead to God and unable to know him, and then we come to that man to defend our faith by saying, let me show you how you can know God without scripture, without revelation. Haven't we just turned around and said that that man is not a sinner after all? That his sin is no longer so potent that he now needs the revelation of God himself? What Van Til is suggesting is that we must be careful how we defend the faith because our very method may deny our message. Is Calvin able to develop then an, an apologetic that is consistent with his view of the Reformed faith, of man's depravity, of God's sovereignty, the necessity of knowing God? Well, I believe that he does. To be consistent with his presuppositions, Calvin cannot compromise his ideas of first, the presupposition of the existence of a sovereign God. Two, that the knowledge of God is not a matter of neutrality, but of piety. Thirdly, in spite of the inner seat of religion and the external revelation in nature, the human mind due to sin is incapacitated with respect to the knowledge of God. He must be able to uphold that. And then fourthly, also, he must maintain on his own principles, that God is incomprehensible. Thus, his mysteries must be revealed, making Holy Scripture necessary. Now, what kind of apologetic could Calvin bring forth that would be consistent with that? Well, Calvin does develop a very fascinating apologetic, and you can find it in Book 1, uh, the seventh section, starting all the way through at the first uh, subdivision, 171 and following. It is significant as we look at this passage that Calvin is now dealing with the great uh, issue of bibliology. He is dealing with the Roman Catholic skeptical arguments. It may come as a surprise to you, but higher criticism, in a sense, found its beginnings in the Reformation through the Catholic assaults against Protestant theology of sola scriptura. You see, their position was, we're going to show you that you can never have a trustworthy Bible unless you have a sovereign, infallible church that gives you that Bible. If you're left to a Bible, there's no proof that that's a true word from God. And so Calvin has to address, apologetically, the Roman Catholic system that creates the very kind of skepticism toward revelation that the higher critics do. And so he says, but a most pernicious error widely prevails that scripture has only so much weight as is conceded to it by the consent of the church, as if the eternal and viable truth of God depended upon the decision of men. For they mock the Holy Spirit when they ask, who can convince us that these writings came down from God? Who can assure us that scripture has come down whole and intact even to our very day? Who can persuade us to receive one book in reverence but to exclude another unless the church prescribe a sure rule for all these matters. In other words, here is a great apologetical situation. Defending the faith, the scriptural revelation from God. How will Calvin do it? 
Well, Calvin does indeed have an apologetic. And his first answer is one called the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. The inner witness of the Holy Spirit is the defense of Scripture. Notice what he says. Thus the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. The prophets and apostles do not boast either of their keenness or of anything that obtains credit for them as they speak, nor do they dwell upon rational proofs. Rather, they bring forward God's holy name. Again, he says, if we desire to provide in the best way for our consciences that they may not be perpetually beset by the instability of doubt or vacillation, and that they may not also boggle at the smallest quibbles, we ought to seek our conviction in a higher place than human reasons, judgments, or conjectures. That is, in the secret testimony of the Spirit. And again, true, if we wish to proceed by arguments, we might advance many things that would easily prove, if there is any God in heaven, that the law of the prophets and the gospel come from him. He says we must know there's a God before we're going to use evidences to prove him and to prove his word. He goes on, and listen, he, he continues to make sure we don't miss him. He says, yet they who strive to build up firm faith in Scripture through disputation are doing things backwards. He said, the proofs come after the faith. Without the faith, you will never seek the proofs. You must begin with the presupposition that there is a God who has revealed himself. Again, Calvin says, but even if anyone clears God's sacred word from man's evil speaking, he will not at once imprint upon their hearts that certainty which piety requires. Since for unbelieving men, religion seems to stand by opinion alone, they in order not to believe anything foolishly or lightly, both wish and demand rational proof that Moses and the prophets spoke divinely. But I reply, the testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. Calvin didn't say it once. He says it again and again and again that the greatest defense of the truth of Scripture is the Holy Spirit's witness through the Scriptures. That is presuppositional apologetics at its best when the Bible is presented in all of its force and not compromised but taught because it is true. But Calvin doesn't stop there. He not only maintains the internal witness of the Spirit, but he remembers that, after all, the Bible is a product of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he develops the notion of the self-authentication of Scripture. He goes on to say, Let this point therefore stand, that those whom the Holy Spirit has inwardly taught truly rest upon Scripture, and that Scripture indeed is self-authenticated. Listen to this next statement. Hence, it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. And the certainty it deserves with us, it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. Again, in the same section, he says, We seek no proofs, no marks of genuineness upon which our judgment may lean, but we subject our judgment and wit to it as to a thing far beyond any guesswork. This we do not as persons accustomed to seize upon some unknown thing, which under closer scrutiny displeases them, but fully conscious that we hold the unassailable truth. Nor do we do this as those miserable men who habitually bind over their minds to the thraldom of superstition, but we feel that the undoubted power of his divine majesty lives and breathes there. By this power we are drawn and inflamed, knowingly and willingly to obey him, yet also more vitally and more effectively than by mere human willing or knowing. Such, then, is a conviction that requires no reasons, such a knowledge with which the best reason agrees, in which the mind truly reposes more securely and constantly than in any reasons, such, finally, a feeling that can be born only of heavenly revelation. What is Calvin's apologetic? It is the inseparability of the Word and Spirit. It is the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit 
and the self-authenticating character of the written word that produces the conviction that alone creates the Christian life. Well then, does Calvin say then that it's a waste of time to bother to use evidences, to take time to answer the questions, well, what about the JEDP theory? What about the preservation of the text? What about all the historical problems of archaeology? Should we just ignore them? Of course not. Calvin will conclude his apologetic by saying, yet there are firm proofs available to establish the credibility of Scripture. He says, unless this certainty, higher and stronger than any human judgment, be present, it will be vain to fortify the authority of Scripture by arguments, to establish it by common agreement of the church, or to confirm it with other helps. For unless this foundation is laid, its authority will always remain in doubt. Conversely, once we have embraced it devoutly as its dignity deserves and have recognized it to be above the common sort of things, those arguments, not strong enough before to engraft and fix the certainty of Scripture in our minds, become very useful aids. Evidences, theological research, is always confirmatory or, or polemical against unbelief but it is never in itself persuasive. It is never able to bring about faith. What we might say for Calvin is that when all is said and done, he is saying that apologetics is a supernatural business. Belief that God himself will defend himself through his own word. And our purpose as an apologist is to bring the reality of the convicting power of the spirit that has gripped your own soul and presented in power to an unbelieving world. Van Til uh, has an interesting passage, if I can put my finger on it here, where he is speaking about what men will think of his method. I think it's a method that uh, is precisely that of, of Calvin's. I'm not going to find it, it looks like. I'll, I'll, I wish I had marked the page. But basically what he says, there's one other section where he says that uh, philosophers will think that we've given away our minds to operate this way. But he says, we know better, for we have the mind of God. So is Calvin, the presuppositional apologetic. Well, we must conclude. The last point that we want to raise then, we've looked at three. Calvin was an apologist. Secondly, Calvin is very conscious of his epistemological assumptions. Thirdly, Calvin develops a, develop, a developed apologetic that is consistent with his insistence that natural man cannot be persuaded by his own arguments. And then lastly, our fourth question, does Calvin criticize other types of apologetic methods? That is, is Calvin conscious that there are other systems out there than what he's talking about. And so he says, we've noted already in 175, which I read just a moment ago, the traditional apologetic is seen as, quote, not right by Calvin to submit the scriptures to proof. He says, scripture indeed is self-authenticated, hence it is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning. In fact, the traditional apologetic, he says, is foolish. In 1.8.13, he said, There are other reasons, neither few nor weak, for which the dignity and majesty of Scripture are not only affirmed in godly hearts, but brilliantly vindicated against the wiles of its disparagers. Yet of themselves, these are not strong enough to provide a firm faith, until our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty there, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. Therefore, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, these human testimonies which exist to confirm it will not be vain if, as secondary aids to our feebleness, they follow that chief and highest testimony. Now listen. But those who wish to prove to unbelievers that Scripture is the Word of God are acting foolishly, for only by faith can this be known. Augustine, therefore, justly warns that godliness and peace of mind ought to come first if a man is to understand anything of such great matters. Calvin's point 
is that there is no argument that will ever prove God to an unbelieving mind. But once the mind comes to know God, the whole world proves his existence, and every argument confirms it beyond doubt. Calvin, I therefore submit, was indeed very much a presuppositionalist. I believe in many of the very ways in which Van Til would later describe himself, we find Calvin and Van Til being in unity. And so I'd like to say that Calvin was indeed standing on the shoulders of a giant. He developed the grist in his mill from Calvin into new forms, but he was standing upon Calvin. And you know, one of the great exciting things for us, the little short people that we are in our efforts to advance the kingdom of God, we have the privilege of standing on other great shoulders. We get to stand on Calvin and Van Til's shoulders, which Van Til never knew how to do, but we do. And so as we conclude, I'd like to just take a few moments and give you some practical thoughts on what all of this means for ministry in this day. I think a very noteworthy critique of the modern evangelical church says that it seems as though the church is attempting to learn to do its work by the business practices of the modern world and that we are also attempting to do our ministry from the secular therapist's office. Is that criticism correct? I believe it is. Calvin and Van Til would say, never forget the antithesis that exists between a lost world and a world that knows Scripture and knows the power of the Spirit. That we must, as Christians, be able to be in the world but not of the world. That means that our methods must be biblical methods, whether it be for running the church or for counseling our people. Calvin believed in common grace, but common grace was not to be the dominant theme. It was special revelation. So the antithesis is important, but I think more significantly than just being aware of the two kinds of sciences, as Kuiper would put it, regenerate and unregenerate science. But I think secondly, we must be very aware of the lost doctrine of sin in our culture and in our churches and maybe even in your life. You see, my lecture is entitled Reformation and Apologetics. And I believe what brings both of these profoundly together was that in Calvin's day, he insisted that sin was the great problem for man. How do you get right with God? How do you get righteousness before God? And we must not downplay human sin thinking we can merit <clears throat> enough to make it right. And I think in much the same way, even as a whole soteriology developed to address a renewed discovery of sin in the Reformation, so in Van Til, there was a renewed discovery of sin in the mind of man. There was a recognition that there had become to be a compromise in our theology, suggesting somehow the human mind was not quite as seriously damaged by sin as the other parts of the human experience. Van Til said, it too is depraved. It too is dead in trespasses and sins. And I think in our culture we must recognize that we must rediscover the truth that sin is real and that it is not my cleverness, my reason, or your cleverness, or your reason that will solve the problems of the world. We're sinners. And that sin drives us again back to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. I think the Reformation in Calvin's day went forward with the apologetic of addressing man's lost estate of sin. Thirdly, Calvin reminded us that after all is said and done, apologetics is a supernatural task. It is a belief that the Holy Spirit is the one that makes the difference. That we are not capable in and of ourselves to see people come to faith. Some of us sometimes say, I wish I could persuade men more effectively. And we ought to work on those skills in preaching and argumentation and all the other things that are part of presenting the Christian faith. But Calvin, I think, was quite right when he said, the only true faith is that which the Spirit of God seals in our hearts. Indeed, the modest and teachable reader will be content with this one reason. Isaiah promised all the children of the renewed church that they would be God's disciples. 
God deems worthy of singular privilege only his elect whom he distinguishes from the human race as a whole. Whenever then the fewness of believers disturbs us, let the converse come to mind that only those to whom it is given can comprehend the mysteries of God. That we must believe that God must go before us. That we need not greater skills first and foremost, even though those are important. We need it the power of the Holy Spirit. We need divine appointments. And so I wonder, and I say it with you, if we take the time to pray that God would bless our word. Perhaps we spend more time in the exegesis of our sermons than we do in lifting them up for God to speak through us, thinking that the power rests within us instead of our God. And then lastly, and with this I conclude, Practically, this apologetic that's consistent with the Reformed faith, and I believe the foundation of Van Til's method and message, reminds us that the scriptures, when all is said and done, are powerful. Luther put it this way, don't defend the Bible. The Bible is like a lion. Let it loose. It will defend itself. What we must do in our day is remember that Jeremiah was right when he said the Bible is God's hammer. That the writer of the Hebrews was correct when he said it is a two-edged sword. That we can say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. And that we do believe with Jesus Christ that thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Do you believe that that was a powerful message 500 years ago? Well, the word has not changed the spirit has not changed. Our culture has changed. But the power of God is not short. The arm of the Lord is not so small or so weak that it cannot bring forth a change. When the church rises up believing that God's word is powerful and that his spirit will work. And therefore, how do we train people to be Vantillian apologists? Teach them to live their faith in the Bible every day. And we will change the world. Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening up these historical ideas, these philosophy ideas, these theological concerns, and also some practical issues. We pray, Lord, that you might help us to have the passion, the commitment, the stirring of the soul that Calvin wrote about. Lord, he said that was common to every believer. Lord, it seems awfully uncommon in this day. And we pray that by your grace, you might enable us to be your spokespeople in a world that needs to hear your word. And Lord, we pray you'd begin that in each of our hearts. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.